0: Um, uh, good evening to my class. Um, I'm going to take up Chapter 3 t- uh, today. And um, if you'd recall, uh, you know, we uh, had discussed, uh, you, you know, in the second chapter, how, uh, uh, you know, Amir Salt was getting sort of familiar with uh, procedure and, uh, you know, sort of ritual. You know, in the court and um, you know in the prison, and uh, how he uh, you know develops his understanding of himself and, her, uh, and of his environment. Um, in in chapter three, uh, the trial. Now, um, the trial is also um, significant in the sense that it um, exposes um, you know many fault lines. Um, you know, by fault line I mean many um, you know loopholes, many uh, things that you'd find very very you know strange um, connections being made between things which otherwise we we don't think actually uh, you know uh, have any kind of connection together we'll see the manner in which the jury behaves the the lawyers uh, you know what the witnesses say and in this whole scheme how does our naive hero merson behave you know uh, he becomes more and more an outsider, uh, and he just feels that everything is being discussed, um, you know, about him. Uh, but yet he's outside that uh, scheme of discussion. You know, he says, "I wish somebody would have asked me of my opinion." You know, uh, what what is my, uh, uh, you know, uh, take on this? What is my view on this? And he slowly seems to be just, uh, you know, passing out of that frame. He doesn't seem to exist there even though this case is necessarily about him. And uh, we're also going to find how, uh, you know, points of his personal life are going to be so very closely linked um, to the murder that he commits, so much so that, you know, the murder goes into the background and, um, you know, his behaviour at his mother's funeral becomes more important. So um, I'm beginning with, um, uh, you know, the opening lines of the chapter. I must say that, in fact, summer very soon came round again. I knew that as soon as it began to get hot, something new was going to happen to me. And uh, remember in all my other lectures, I've always talked to you about the heat and the sun, how they become very um, important kind of, uh, you know, premonitions. A premonition is, you know, something... Uh, that is predicted about something that's going to happen and uh, it's always a premonition of something bad we saw the heat during the funeral we saw the extreme heat during the murder and now we're going to look at the heat and the stuffiness in the courtroom uh, you know when the sentence is also going to be pronounced okay so um, you know it's a hot summer and uh, there are just two cases in the court. One is that of manslaughter, and the other is of a parasite. And look at the way in which the public and the media look at the cases. You know, they look at it from the point of view of being sensational. So this says, you know, um, there's, uh, the court doesn't want to waste any time uh, because you know yours isn't the most important case. You know, there's a parasite coming on immediately afterwards. Okay, so the parasite is in which uh, a case in which you know and uh, kills his own father so that's more interesting you know Uh, and uh, that's more sensational okay and one would ask oneself and especially you as students of law uh, what does an interesting and uninteresting case really mean you know a case is a case and it's as important for the individual uh, you know whether it's a parasite or whether it's you know, you know, even maybe a petty theft. So, you know, how uh, uh, the media and, uh, you know, even the courts view it as um, important and unimportant. Okay. So, um, now, you know, at half past um, seven in the morning, uh, you know he was sitting in his cell, and you know the police came to fetch him, and then uh, you know they sat down, and there was commotion in the courtroom, chairs scraping, and uh, you know it reminded him. Just look at the way he thinks of it. it said it reminded him of, of one of those local festivals where after the concert they clear the room for dancing. You know, uh, look at the way, uh, you know, the irony and the humor that he uses. You know, he said the courtroom was just like a local uh, festival where, you know, there's so many scraping of chairs and the whole place just being emptied for, um, you know, a dance session. Right? So uh, the policeman, you know, told me that um, we had to wait for the court to convene and one of them offered him a cigarette which he refused. Yes, remember now he's got so used to not smoking cigarettes okay so remember the you know a very important aspect of the soul philosophy is that you get used to everything yes even mother said that even salamano got used to his dog so he gets used to not smoking and he's able to give it up okay so you see this is also very significant because um Amir salt was used to only uh, uh, you know sort of um, uh, you know giving food to his senses you know uh, his desire for food, for drink, for cigarettes, for sex. So, I mean, this is what he, you know, um, was basically, um, he judged himself according to those uh, requirements. And now he's sort of uh, slowly in the second part, he's giving those things up, you know. He's had to give up cigarettes. Uh, he's obviously had to give up sex, even though he, you know, he says he was tormented by the, you know, thought sort of a woman. But then uh, when he is, giving up these things, uh, you know, he's also able to sort of um, look inward, you know, introspect and think of himself more than merely just being, you know, uh, a body with, uh, you know, a certain kind of requirements. Okay. So, um... Then, uh, you know, a a very significant uh, line of this, um, you know, second paragraph, he says, uh, in fact, in a way, it would be interesting to watch a trial. You know, the policeman asks him if he's nervous, and he says, "Uh, no, I'm not. But he says, it would be very interesting to watch a trial. I'd never had the chance to see one before. So, yes, the policeman said, but it ends up being boring. Yes, now look at. Mersault is saying that I'm going to be very interested in watching a trial. And this trial effectively is his own. Right? So uh, remember we talked about how he is essentially an outsider. So even this case which uh, you know revolves around him, he says I'm going to look at it with great interest because I've never seen a trial. Okay. Look at the manner in which he is so detached or he's able to detach himself from everything and almost place himself in the position of an outsider. Okay. So, you know, after a short while, there's a bell that rings and, um, uh, you know, uh, there's um, a settling down in this courtroom. And, uh, you know, he found that, uh, mm, uh, you know, uh, he notices that there was a, you know, row of faces in front of him and they were all looking at him. And he realized that they were the jury. So now, uh, obviously, for the first time, he's gone to the court and he's seeing that uh, these were the people on the jury. And he said, I had just one impression. I was in a tram and all these anonymous passengers on the opposite seat were scrutinizing the new arrival to find the peculiarities. So, uh, you know, he's going back to sort of uh, describe things like he would describe in, in the first part. He says, I was sitting like, you know, um, you know it was like being traveling in a tram which is full of anonymous passengers and there's a new passenger which comes and everybody stops to just you know view the peculiarities of that passenger and i think we've all had this kind of experience when we enter into either a crowded room or a crowded um, you know uh, train or a metro you just feel that you are the uh, you know sort of center of everybody else's attention um You know, he says, I know it was a silly idea since it wasn't peculiarities they were looking at for here, uh, but criminality. So he says, yes, the difference is that when you travel in a train or in a tram, people are looking for peculiarities. But here the jury is obviously looking for criminality, you know, and then he says there's not much difference, though. And anyway, that was the idea that came to me. So he says there's no uh, difference between criminality and peculiarity, although we do understand that they are two very different things, you know. A peculiar person doesn't have to be a criminal. But he says now everything seems to be just getting muddled and just getting mixed, you know, one into the other, right. So um, then, you know, he felt a bit dizzy. It was a very stuffy room and, um, you know, he says you usually nobody took any notice of him you know so he had to make um, an effort to understand that i was the cause of all the excitement you know and he is absolutely like a naive hero absolutely like an outsider uh, you know outside the scheme of things which are actually very much uh, which very much belong to him so um you know uh, he says, What a lot of people. And he says, You know, it was because of the papers. And he pointed to a group standing, you know, uh, they were the journalists. Okay. So the papers have talked about his case and the journalists have come to cover it. And he's going to, um, you know, uh, look at how there was an elderly, pleasant looking man who was a journalist and he was shaking hands with the policemen. And he says, You know, I noticed everybody was meeting and welcoming everyone. Uh, you know as just as if this was some kind of a club where people were happy to find themselves in a familiar world, you know. And he probably even envies these people who are able to shake hands with one another. And you see a certain kind of a, you know, a certain kind of a relationship that has been formed between the policemen and the people of the media. And, uh, you know, they seem to have a sort of um, friendship going around there. And uh, see, the next line is significant. That was how I explained the peculiar impression I had of being out of place a bit like an intruder, so he says, you know, when the journalists and the policemen and the jury, everybody seemed to have found their places, um, you know, so to speak, he says, I was out of place, you know, I was not like them, I was uh, out of their uh, scheme of things, and he says, I was completely, you know, alienated, yes, so we're talking of the hero. we're talking about the outsider, we're talking of a stranger, okay, so um, the journalist looked at him and smiled, and he was, wondering, you know, uh, what's going on. And, um, you know, so he says, you know, the summer, uh, it's very silly for the papers. He said, you know, um, there was only your story and the one on the parasite that were worth doing. So he says, there's nothing much. Your case is sensational, maybe as it is. But then the case of the parasite is even more sensational. So uh, look at how the cases are being graded. Yes, they're being put in categories and they're being discussed or they're going to be observed by the media, uh, you know, accordingly in that way, right? So now his lawyer arrives in a gown and there are many other colleagues and his lawyer came up and, you know, shook hands and told him to reply briefly to any question that may be asked and never take the initiative and to rely on him to do the rest. Okay, so we understand how um, you know lawyers would always have that sense of confidence that um, you know they could lead the way and they could win every case. So he says, don't speak; we're not um, you know asked to, and don't take any initiative, and just be very brief in your answers. Okay, so um, you know that he starts um, observing people, and there are three judges: two in uh, black, the third in red. They came in carrying files and walked very briskly and you know they settle down on a platform uh in the room okay and then um He says, you know, um, they were all wearing the same indifferent and rather sardonic expression. Sardonic is one which shows mockery, right? And he finds that there is a certain kind of an indifference and also a kind of a mocking kind of expression that they have on their faces. Okay, And he says, um, I had the peculiar impression of being watched by myself. It may have been for that reason and also because I was unfamiliar with all the procedures that I didn't quite follow everything that happened after that, okay? The drawing of lots, you know, the prosecutor, uh, reading of the papers, etc. So he says he found it very, very peculiar, but he says he was always feeling that he was watched. I remember he had this feeling even when he was sitting during the vigil and he felt that all the people in the old age home at Marengo were actually judging him, you know, they were looking at him and judging him, okay. So how, uh, you know, an individual in an in indifferent universe, otherwise being constantly watched and judged, okay. Then, um, you know, uh, the uh, now it's going to be the time for the, you know, for everything to start, the proceedings. And he saw in uh, the court, a lot of people who he knew. So he says, I saw the warden and the caretaker from the home, old Thomas Perez, Raymond, Masson, Salomano, and Marie. You know, and Marie gave him a wave, which was an anxious wave. Remember when she smiles at him, there's anxiety. When she waves at him, there's certain kind of an anxiety which he sees. Okay. Then, uh, uh, you know, he uh, sees Celeste as well, okay. And he also recognizes the little woman from the restaurant sitting next to him with her jacket and a precise and purposeful manner. Remember the robotic woman who orders a meal in a very robotic manner, who, you know, pays um, the bill beforehand, who hands away everything along with the tip, etc. And she is looking at him very intently. See, she knows nothing about it. But then even people who are remotely connected with him, uh, you know, uh, find the whole thing very, very interesting because he's been made out to be a certain kind of a monstrous kind of an individual, okay. So um, now he looks at everybody and tries to, you know, uh, observe everything and his examination began, began at once. And, you know, by the time it's getting hotter and hotter, it's very stuffy, it's very uncomfortable and, uh, you know, that's uh, what, the, that's what uh, you know, the sun and the heat do. Uh, whenever we see Mersault in, in in sort of uh, interaction with it, remember I told you in my, uh, prob- my first lecture that it's not the universe that is meaningless; it's not the individual that is meaningless. It's an interaction between the two that actually brings about that kind of um, you know absurdity. So um, now he gave his personal particulars. He said that irritated me. Um, and uh, he says i think it was important because you know they shouldn't be trying the wrong man yes look at the humor and the irony in it although we know uh, you know it's so unnecessary to for him to repeat all those same things all right. so um, then uh, you know every time the judge says you know is it correct is it correct to sort of you know Mm, uh, you know, validate or justify whatever he was saying, all right. So then um, after that, uh, he said that, you know, he wanted to uh, touch upon certain matters which might seem uh, foreign to his case, but uh, which uh, they could be, uh, which could be very, very relevant. Okay. So we're looking at how, uh, you know, the dots are going to be uh, sort of joined and the dots are going to be joined between things sometimes which don't have um, you know any kind of um, connection as well okay now um, then uh, you know the you know, there's this question which is asked about his um, killing the Arab, okay, so he's asked you know, whether he had gone back to the spring alone with the intention of killing the Arab, okay, so obviously we you understand as students of law uh, you know, that when uh, somebody kills or commits any kind of crime what was the intention, so uh, Meersault obviously says, says no, so in that case he says why was he armed and why returned to precisely that spot, and what does Meersault say, I said it was by chance all right so <clears throat> there were many things which happen uh, which happened by accident and in mayorsol's life you'll see there are many things that happened just by chance all right so uh, you know and you know the prosecutor you know he remarked in a very malicious tone uh, that would all that would all be all for the present all right and uh, after that uh, you know he felt that things were very confused they were very um, you know he wasn't able to understand what was going on and how uh, you know things moved moved very very quickly right now uh, uh, then uh, the first person you know that is called is a warden of the home right and he was wiping uh, you know Merzal was wiping the sweat from his face and he only vaguely remembered where he was what he was doing there when he heard the name of the warden being called, right? Now, <clears throat> the the warden becomes uh, a significant uh, a significant witness because he's going to talk about things uh, which he experienced firsthand with Maersault, right? And he was asked whether mother used to complain about Mayor salt and he said yes. But he says all inmates had the habit of complaining about their relatives. Okay, then the judge asked him to specify whether she used to reproach him or whether she was unhappy for having uh, for having been sent to a home. And the warden said yes. To another question, he replied, you know, that he was surprised by the calmness of Mersault on the day of the funeral. And he was asked by the uh, you know what did he mean by calmness? Okay, and the warden said. Uh, you know, he didn't want to see mother, he hadn't cried even once, and he'd left straight after the funeral without paying his respects at the grave. Okay, and we know that actually he wanted to see his mother straight after uh, he arrived, but then the formalities just made him uh, lose that kind of interest that he initially had. Remember, he's very spontaneous in his uh, actions, and he's very rawly emotional in the manner in which he reacts. Okay, then, um. Uh, uh, you know, he says there was another thing that surprised him uh, because one of the undertaker's men had told him that he didn't know how old mother was. Remember, he'd asked this question several times and he says, oh, she was pretty old and she was around 60, etc. So, <clears throat> you know, not knowing the exact age of your mother was almost, you know, blasphemous, like I said earlier, right? Then, uh, you know, uh, he, the warden, you know, then he also says that... Uh, you know, it's the law, this is how you have to uh, you know, speak. And he says, uh, you know, it's quite sufficient for the first time. Uh, you know, what does Miss salt feel when he listens to the warden and when he speaks in that manner and we talks about his mother? He says, you know, for the first time in years, I stupidly felt like crying because I could tell how much all these people hated me. So now the question of his mother's death, uh, sending his mother to an old age home, and not crying at the funeral sort of becomes central to the entire trial and Marisol says I wanted to weep because I knew that all these people sort of hated me and it was a kind of a collective kind of a hate okay um, then uh, you know the um, the jury asked the lawyer whether they had any questions and uh, then the caretaker is called right and he said that you know uh, he answered the question he said that um, I hadn't wanted to see mother I smoked, I slept, and I'd had some white coffee, uh, and I felt something stirring up the whole room. For the first time, I realized that I was guilty. So he says, I never thought I was guilty about the uh, you know of the murder. He says, for the first time, I realized that yes, I'm guilty, uh, because I didn't cry at my mother's funeral. And then uh, you know, at this point. The, you know the lawyer asked the caretaker if he hadn't had a cigarette too he says, yes you know Marisol smoked but when he offered me of course he was embarrassed but he says you know since he offered me I didn't refuse alright so um, you know the lawyer is very angry and he says you know who is the criminal uh, you know in this court and <coughs> you know what is the meaning of casting aspersions on the witnesses for the prosecution alright so uh, you know in spite of all this the you know everything seems to be very confusing and uh, whatever the witnesses you know whether the warden or the caretaker have said seemed to be like damning it the evidence against him right so uh, then you know they asked him whether you know he had anything to say and he says nothing I uh, answered except that the witness is right it's true I offered him a cigarette uh, we know that uh, mayor salt uh, you know will, will will never lie right uh, then of course um, uh, you know his uh, his uh, you know uh, lawyer also you know is trying to sort of encourage him and uh, he says you know yes the gentleman the jury will take note and they will conclude that a stranger may offer a cup of tea but that a son must refuse it beside the body of the one who brought him into the world okay so uh, the prosecutor's voice obviously is booming and he says but yes it's okay you know <coughs> if um, you know a stranger offers you a cup of uh, coffee but you as a son must not accept it because you were in front of the dead body of your mother the ketika then went back to his seat Okay, then came Thomas Perez Okay, and <clears throat> we know that Thomas Perez is a very good friend of his mother's in fact people used to tease him as her fiance right? so then he was asked whether Mersault cried at the funeral he says, I was too uh, upset I had fainted but he says, yes I don't think he cried And then, uh, uh, you know, Perez is very clear that, yes, he he never cried, okay. And uh, then he says, you know, he asked Perez in what seemed to be a very exaggerated tone whether he'd noticed me not crying, Perez said no, and the public laughed, right. And uh, the lawyer is getting furious about all this, but, you know, everything seems to be hinging around the question of whether he cried or not at at his mother's funeral, right. Then, um, Celeste is the next one it's called and we know Celeste is a very good friend of um, uh, you know of uh, Meersault okay and uh, they asked him you know uh, you know what does he uh, do and what kind of a relationship did you have and you know how would he behave when he comes came to your shop so he says yes he's a customer but he was a friend as well and uh, you know he said that he was a man of the world he was a Nice, good man, and he was a nice man. And Celeste tried to say very nice things about him, you know. Uh, so he says that you know he's to come and have uh, you know uh, food with me regularly, and you know it was never about paying money, etc. But it was you know a very friendly kind of relationship. And then he says, you know, uh, you know, this whole thing that happened, this murder, etc., was a mishap, you know. And he says a mishap. Everybody knows. What that is, you know, you can't guard against that. So uh, there you are. I think it was a mishap. So he says it was a mis, you know, it, it was a kind of a unplanned kind of a, uh, you know, something wrong that had happened. Okay, and then uh, you know, but the judge, you know, just. Uh, Told him that that was enough, and he said didn't want to say anything more. Celeste wants to speak, you know, good words about him, and he said all kinds of nice things about him. But nobody's listening, because he's already been condemned because he has not cried at his mother's funeral. And there is very uh, funny and interesting lines here. He says he seemed to uh, be asking me what more he could do. You know, his lips are trembling, and he seems to be asking him, okay, what more can I say?" I didn't say anything. I didn't even move. But he says, you know, it was the first time uh, in my life that I'd ever wanted to kiss a man, you know. So he, you know, he said that he really was so enamored, uh, you know, with the good words of uh, Celeste that he almost wanted to ki- kiss him, all right. Um, then, of course, it's time for Marie to come. And, you know, Marie's nervous, she's anxious, okay. And, um, of course, she said that she was the girlfriend of Mary Salt, okay. Uh, to another question, she replied, it was true, uh, you know, uh, that she was too... Uh, marry me okay so they asked her you know when did you meet him and when did you start your relationship and she mentioned the date Then the prosecutor remarked indifferently that it was a date uh, or the day after his mother was um, you know was buried okay so in a very ironic manner uh, you know and uh, he said that he was you know his duty obliged him uh, to you know ask such questions even though they were not uh, you know um, they were improper but they were essential you know and he says I want to know all the details you know uh, describe whatever happened on the day that she had uh, intercourse with uh, Mersault and this is a very uncomfortable question Marie didn't want to but then the prosecutor insisted and she said swam and they'd been to the pictures and they gone to back to the place and then uh, you know the prosecutor you know said that you know as a result of the statements made by marie he looked at the programs of the day and uh, he asked marie you know which was the film that they watched and she says it was a Fernando film right so that's enough to actually put that uh, you know nail in the coffin so to speak and he says you know this is how um, you know the prosecutor announces uh, you know things about him Gentlemen of the jury on the day after death of his mother this man was swimming in the sea Entering into an irregular liaison and laughing at a Fernando film. I have nothing more to say to you. He sat down and was silent. Okay. All of a sudden, Marie burst into tears and said it wasn't like that. It was something else, and she was being made to say the opposite of what she thought. And I hadn't done anything wrong. But at a signal from the judge, uh, she was taken away. After that, nobody uh, listened. People did not listen to Masson. People did not listen to Salamano. And when it was Raymond's turn, you know, Raymond said that you know, um, Mayor sort is innocent, and the judge says that you're not here to pass any value judgments. Okay, although we do know that the entire legal apparatus and the entire legal system is passing very, very strong, uh, you know, moral judgments against him. Right? Uh, then you know, of course, you know. Uh, Raymond Sintes is asked, you know, about how that uh, letter which lay behind the intrigue was written by Mersault and Raymond said it was just by chance. Then he says, uh, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of things that have just happened by chance, you know, your... Uh, you know, you beating up your mistress, and then he going to the police station, acting as a witness, writing that letter, and you know, uh, finally, you know, shooting the Arab, and then he says, you know, how what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a warehouse man and then you know, the uh, when he says that, uh, you know, the. Prosecutor announced and says, you know, that when you talk of people as, you know, warehousemen, they're actually procurers, which means they're pimps, okay. So, uh, you know, everything seems to be working against him. Uh, and, you know, Mary Saul says, I was his friend and accomplice. In fact, the whole affair was one of the most stor- sordid description. And what rendered it all the more iniquitous, okay, that's evil or unfair, was the fact that they were dealing with an immoral monster. Okay. so he's been declared as an immoral monster and he says was, uh, you know, he's asked by the prosecutor, was uh, Mersault, uh, was Raymond your friend and he says yes, he was my mate uh, and uh, all that seals his fate completely, you know. Uh, then, you know, his lawyer asks a very important question, he says, but after all, is Mersault being... Uh, accused of burying his mother or killing a man you know and he says you know there's a lot of confusion here and why are these two things being put together then uh, you know in, in in a very profound manner this is what has been declared about Mersault. i accuse this man of burying his mother like a heartless criminal you know and uh, you know the public are very very uh, you know taken aback and my lawyer shrugged his shoulders wiped his brow okay but then things were not going well for him okay so now uh, the court is um, uh, you know adjourned and he's going back and he can hear uh, you know the cries of uh, uh, the you know the newspaper sellers etc uh, and this is very um It's, you know, it's a very emotional kind of uh, things that he recalls, you know. The cries of the newspaper sellers in the languid evening air, the last birds in the square, the shouts of the sandwich sellers, the moaning of the trams high in the winding streets of the town, and the murmuring of the sky before darkness spills over into the port. All these sounds marked out an invisible route, which I knew so well before going into prison. So all these things which were otherwise, you know, he was so familiar with them and now they seem to be, uh, you know, becoming a part of a routine of going every day or whenever he had to, rather, from the prison to the court and back and forth. Okay? Yes, this was the time of the day when long ago I used to feel happy. You know, he says this was the time when he was at peace, he was calm. What always awaited me then was a night of easy, dreamless sleep. And yet, something had changed, for which the prospect of the coming day, it was to my cell that I returned, you know. And he comes back and remember, uh, he is always, uh, uh, you know, earlier he used to find it difficult to sleep, and then he found it very difficult to pass time in the evenings, but now there's a certain kind of calm that comes over him, you know. And, you know, as if a familiar journey under summer sky could as easily end in prison. an innocent sleep so he analyzes his journey he analyzes his life and he becomes sort of introspective and he understands that now he's going back to sleep in his prison cell okay so this um, you know chapter is significant from the point of view of how the trial is conducted how he feels like an outsider at his own trial and how he often wants to be involved. He wants somebody to ask his opinion. But whenever he is asked of his opinion, he speaks very, very, you know, bluntly and just tells the truth. And that just uh, doesn't do anything good for him. You know, he'd probably have done better if he lied. But we understand that's what, um, you know, Albert Camus says, that my hero is condemned because he doesn't play the game. And what's the game? He refuses to lie. Yes, everybody is lying because he says lying makes life simpler, right? So, um, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, that's it for this podcast. And uh, please listen to it very carefully. And, uh, you know, then we can have our, um, you know, our own line of uh, discussion and our own line of uh, questions, etc. open. Thank you.